compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's great to have you. We are about to dig into what is one of the weirdest and strangest chapters in the book of Genesis and what may be one of the toughest and strangest chapters in the book of the in the Bible. This chapter, Genesis chapter 38, is about a man named Judah. Judah is Jacob's fourth oldest son, and this chapter gives us a window into what was going on in his life for the 20 years after Joseph was sold into slavery. Now, at first, you may think, oh, Judah, well, isn't he a good guy? I mean, doesn't it say in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah? I mean, you, you, when Jesus is associating himself with Judah, you think, this, you know, that's pretty a happening guy. But I need to tell you, Judah is not a good guy, at least not at first. In fact, he is a terrible guy. He is a downright evil guy. He is the kind of guy you just hope that your daughter never meets because you know it will not go good from there. And he is just like his older brothers. His older brothers are pretty bad. We've learned that in previous weeks. Reuben, the oldest, he's already slept with one of his uh, father's wives, and that's pretty bad and evil stuff. Simeon and Levi, they are mass murderers because they killed all the men in the city of Shechem, we saw in previous weeks. And along comes Judah. And, and Judah, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, in that verse, Paul is giving us a catalog of really dark, bad sins. And in that list is a slave trader. That's a really bad, sinful thing. Now, Judah isn't just a slave trader, but he sells people into slavery. He sells his own flesh and blood family into slavery. And if that isn't evil, I don't know what is. You get an idea that he is a totally messed up guy. So in Genesis chapter 38, we read about Judah and his messed up evil story. And it's also a chapter, as you're going to see, that has some very explicit things in it. And so many people try to just skip over this chapter when it comes to Genesis. But we're not going to skip over it, and I'm going to tell you why. And that is because this chapter is one of the most amazing stories of God's undeserved grace you're going to find out there. Because Judah runs so far from God, but yet we're going to find how God takes him back and God uses him in amazing ways that you could never, ever imagine. At least at first when you start his story. So as we dive into this text, I need to you know it's going to be rough for a little bit as you learn the first part of his life, but it'll end up really amazing as you look at the last part of his life and what God does for him after he repents. By the way, before we dive in, I need to talk about one thing just so you need to understand this, and this is the first point in your outline, and that is that the Bible is an R-rated book, whether you realize it or not. 
See, most people think that the Bible is a G-rated book. They say the Bible, you know, we should be able to use it for children's curriculum. It's the Bible. Well, let me tell you something. Why it's very important that we teach our children the Bible. Not everything in the Bible was written for children. You understand that? The Bible is an adult-level book written for adults, and it deals with adult-level issues in adult ways. This is why the Bible spends a lot of time talking about things like marriage, adultery, our sexuality. It talks about deception, greed, murder, and this thing called hell that apart from Jesus Christ, everyone will spend an eternity there apart from the good news of what God has done for us through Him. And when you are a church like we are, where we preach consecutively, systematically, right through Scripture, we, there is no way to avoid it. We will run into chapters in the Bible that have some of this R-rated material in it. And we, there's two ways to handle it. You either start skipping these things or you do what we did this morning, which is we just take the children and we ask them to leave and we preach the adult book to adults like we're going to do today. Now, by the way, uh, not only does the Bible have R-rated material in it, but translators, just so you know, they're not helping us because a lot of the modern Bible translators, they've tried to sanitize the Bible and tried to tame it and make it very acceptable for everyone to read. And when they do that, unfortunately, they sometimes take the edginess off of the original language that was in the Greek and the Hebrew text. But let me show you what I mean. For instance, uh, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30 that's written in your notes there. Uh, at this, the situation is Saul is really angry at his son Jonathan for siding, it looks like, with David. And this is what Saul bursts out. He says this, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, you need to know something. That in the Hebrew... It's one word, not perverse and rebellious. The closest translation is, you son of a perverse woman. Now, what would be the most accurate translation in the English today? You said it, I didn't. But you see, they dumb it down because that would be offensive to people. But that's literally what it says. Now, here's another example in Philippians 3.8. Paul says this. He says, indeed, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That doesn't have much of an impact, rubbish. Well, let me tell you what it's like in the original Greek. It's a specific kind of rubbish. It's the kind of stuff you find in a porta potty. Uh, you know, what Paul says, everything is like poop compared to knowing Jesus. That's really what it says. Which, by the way, that's sort of an interesting sermon title, wouldn't it be? But it's true. What G Paul says is nothing, nothing is as of incredible worth to knowing Christ. Everything else is refuse compared to that. And, but you see, the translators take the edge off of this to tame it down. And my simple point is this, 
This is not a G-rated book that we have. This is an adult-level book that speaks to adult-level issues, and it actually was written with adult-level language. And you need to understand that as we dive into Genesis chapter 38, because it deals with some very adult issues in this chapter. So with that being said, let's dive in, and let's start reading about Judah and his crazy story, beginning in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers, and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Okay, let's just back up and explain what's going on. Judah uh, was part of the scheme to murder Joseph. Judah was the guy who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was part of the whole trickery scheme to take the bloody jacket and to deceive his father. You know, I think when Judah comes home at this point and he's around his father and he sees Jacob's complete heartbrokenness that just doesn't seem to end over the loss of Joseph, I think Judah has an incredibly guilty conscience. Like staying home is hard for him. So what he does is it says he leaves home, moves away. He moves in with a guy named Hira. Now, if a name like Hira, you know this guy is a party animal. Okay, that was a joke, but oh well, I tried. He's an Adulamite, which means he's a Canaanite. He's a man of the lands. So what happens is Judah moves in with his non-Christian party animal friend. It's literally what he does. And I picture that when you get two guys together, one that's running from the Lord and the other one that's far from the Lord, and they live together, that just usually means they get in more trouble together than they ever could individually on their own. So this is exactly what I think is going on with Judah. He is running from God. He has turned his back on God. He's moved away from the covenant family. He's on his own doing his thing. In fact, when he's with Hira, he sees a Canaanite woman, and he decides that he's going to marry her. Interestingly, this is not a good deal. If you have been with us through the story of Genesis, you know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they take great pains to make sure that they marry inside of the covenant family. They do not marry outside of the covenant family because they know that if they start to marry a Canaanite woman, a woman who is far from God, it will draw their hearts away from God. And we see this lived out in the rest of Scripture. You guys know Solomon, considered the wisest man to ever live, had God appear to him. And yet what does the Scripture say about what happened to him in his old age? 
His foreign wives drew his hearts away from God. Samson, the strongest man to ever live. What happened to him? His incredible strength was destroyed by Delilah, a foreign woman who didn't love God. So if the wisest man in the world and the strongest man in the world were both destroyed by marrying women outside of the covenant family, what makes you think that Judah would be any different? What makes you think that any of us would be any different? And you see how incredibly important it is to marry inside of the covenant family. Now, even the Hebrew in here uh, just clues us into the incredible shallowness of uh, Judah's relationship with his wife, because it says he saw her and he took her. It doesn't say any kind of romance is involved here. It doesn't say any kind of a time. In fact, the Hebrew is the very same Hebrew that is used for, J for David when he saw Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba, and he took Bathsheba. This is the same kind of thing that goes on with Judah. Must have been a beautiful girl, said, I have to have her, that's it, and just jumps on the situation. So you need to see the way Judah's life has set up. Um, we learned this from Esau. If you were around for earlier in the study, Esau married foreign wives and Esau moved away from the covenant family, and it ruined his life and his lineage. Judah is on the exact same path. He has married a foreign wife, and he has also moved away from the covenant family. So Judah is a train wreck waiting to happen. The story continues. And Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground and not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Judah has three kids. He took his wife, we see originally out of lust, so he thinks, I'm not going to let my kids make the same mistake. So when it comes to Er, his firstborn, he says, I'm going to arrange the marriage for him, gets a woman named Tamar, and puts Er and Tamar together. But here is the problem. Er's name was prophetic of Er's character because Er, big time, erred. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's interesting because the name Er in Hebrew is evil spelled backwards. And when your name is evil spelled backwards, things will not go well. Now, we do not know exactly what Er did, but he was apparently of such incredible wickedness that God struck him dead. I mean, the last time we were reading about God striking people dead in the Bible, I think, was Noah, wasn't it? <laughs> it was incredible wickedness at that time. So it is not good when you are a father that has raised a son that is so wicked that God has struck your son dead. 
That gives you an idea of the background of what's going on here. Now, when Er died, Onan would therefore take his older brother's wife and call his older brother's wife his own. And I know some of you are thinking, that sounds really weird. Well, actually, it's not weird. It's very common in this culture. See, it's called Leverite marriage. What would, would happen in this culture is you would take your older brother's wife. If there was no children, the younger brother would marry that wife, and the first son that was born would be given your older brother's name and would be given your older brother's inheritance. And this was a way to make sure that the older brother's um, inheritance and line was not wiped out and was not destroyed. It was sort of an ancient version of a social security safety net. It was very commonly practiced in the ancient world. And here's where the problem starts to come in. Onan, he knows that there's only two sons left, him and Shelah. And as the older son, he would get a double portion of the, his father's inheritance. And apparently, Judah is incredibly wealthy at this point. Onan, as the way it sits, would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and Shelah would get one-third of the inheritance. But once Onan conceives a son for his brother through Tamar, that son would get a double portion of the inheritance, and it would be split in smaller portions. That son would get half of Judah's inheritance, and Onan would then be reduced down to a quarter of the inheritance. So either two-thirds of the money or one-quarter of the money. And Onan says, hmm, no way I'm doing that. So he says, I want more money. So he decides to spill his semen on the ground repeatedly. And God doesn't like that one bit. Because Onan's sin, by the way, is greed. Onan's sin is selfishness. Doesn't care about leaving an heir for his older brother. Doesn't care about honoring Tamar and giving her children. All he wants to do is use her sexually. And so God strikes him dead. Not going well. Two sons have now been struck dead by God. Obviously, a really bad dad is Judah. Now, I need to pause here for a moment. If you have grown up in the church, you have no doubt seen these verses referenced many times in some of your personal and private studies, and they're often misused. Because many people will say these verses speak very clearly against the dangers of sexual self-gratifications. Oh, you better be careful about sexual self-gratification because God may strike you dead just like he did with Onan if you ever engage in that. That is a misuse of these verses. Onan's sin is not sexual self-gratification. His sin is greed. It is selfishness. It is not caring about his brother or his brother's wife. Now, when it comes to this topic of sexual self-gratification, let me speak just a little bit on this. 
just so you know, the Bible does not speak much about this. It is relatively silent on this issue. So as a church and as Christians, we need to speak very softly about that issue. But why the Bible speaks softly on the topic of sexual self-gratification, it speaks very loudly on the real issue behind that issue. The Bible speaks very loudly on the issue of lust. Because what drives most sexual self-gratification is an out-of-control issue of lust in people's lives. Lust is huge in our culture. In fact, lusting after people of the opposite sex is considered normal. It's considered healthy. It's considered innocent. I did some research and uh, pornography is a $60 billion a year industry globally. $12 billion of that each year is spent by Americans on pornography, which is about Americans, all they want to do is lust. To give you some perspective for that number, more money is spent by Americans on pornography each year than is spent by Americans on pro baseball, pro football, and pro basketball combined. So lust is huge. And the Bible screams very loudly to us that lust is not just innocent fun. What you do between your two ears is not just your business. Because what you role play in your mind will slowly start to become what you real play in your life. And when your mind is addicted to lust, what then happens is you start to struggle with issues of sexual self-gratification. So the, the reason the Bible doesn't speak so clearly on the actual act itself is because the Bible speaks so clearly about what drives the act, which is lust. Look what the Scriptures say. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God says, I'm not just concerned with physical infidelity. I'm concerned with mental infidelity. Now, let me just uh, give you a couple small points on this so there's no misunderstanding. Number one, physical and mental infidelity are different. I have talked to people who said, you know, I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with desiring infidelity. I've been thinking about this so long. I might as well just go ahead and actually commit the act because it's right there in front of me. And I need to tell you, you know, no, there's a huge difference between Mental infidelity and physical infidelity. Mental infidelity, you're sinning against God and you're sinning against yourself and destroying your own mind with sin that way. But with actual physical infidelity, not you're sinning against yourself and God, but you're sinning against another person and all of the people that your lives are connected with. So it is much worse. So don't rationalize physical infidelity after you've been thinking about it. 
Secondly, there is a difference between a lustful thought and lusting. It is one thing to see someone of the opposite sex and recognize them as attractive. That's not sin. It is what we do with that thought after we recognized it. Do we then start to dwell on it? Do we then start to meditate on it and replay it in our mind? That is when lusting begins. And so, there's a difference between the first look and the second look. Thirdly, the way to address the issue of sexual self-gratification is to address the issue of lust. The way to address the issue of lust is to try and take control of your mind and what you are thinking on. Do not allow yourself to dwell on something that is not honoring to God because what happens is that it starts to take over your mind. I like to think of it this way. When you find a lustful thought coming into your mind, you say, I need to change the channel. I need to find something else that is wholesome and good to think about right now. Philippians chapter 4 says, whatever is good, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, these are the things we think about because our mental life is extremely important to God, not just our actual life. Another way that this verse, these verses on Onan are often misunderstood. Some people say, look at Onan. He's using birth control and God struck him dead. Obviously, God does not condone birth control. That's a misuse of these verses also again. Um, just so you know, when it comes to birth control, uh, the Bible says that any kind of birth control that is abortive in nature, that takes a child when it's conceived and destroys it, is obviously against His will. That would include abortion. That would include the morning after pill like RU486. That would include things like intrauterine devices, which are force a woman's menstruation and abortion. And also, some of you may not know this, but that includes most versions of the pill. The pill contraceptive, now the way they formulate it, forces a woman's menstruation, even after conception. So be careful. Most people don't know that. But the Bible, by the way, is not against any kind of uh, birth control that, um, how should we say it? I just, I just lost my brain. Prevents conception. <laughs> it's against birth control that destroys conception. Well, let me continue the story. Judah, at this point, has one son left, Sheila. And if you are like Judah, you are thinking, man, I don't want my boy to be with this woman Tamar. I, I thought I was setting him up with a, a good woman, but everybody who marries her, God strikes dead. She is the ultimate in black widows. So what Judah says is, you know what? Here's the deal. Why don't you take, and, and Sheila, go back to your dad's house, stay there, and when Sheila gets older, then you can marry him. And what he essentially does is he sidelines this girl. Let me read the text. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. 
So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now it's about to get even weirder. And these are God's words. Now in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. And she sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Well, what will you give me that I may come into you? He answered, I will send you a, go a young goat from the flock. And he said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat to his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the colt prostitute, who was a name at the roadside? They said, No colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, Well, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Now, I don't know how many years have passed since Onan has died. We know simply it has been a long time. Possibly at this time, Sheila, the last remaining son, was already married to somebody else. We don't know for sure, but we know that Sheila did get married and he had descendants. They're called the Shelamites in the Bible. Whatever we know is it was very clear at this time to Tamar that she was sidelined and she had no hope of being able to carry on the family line because Er and Onan were dead and looked like there was no hope left for her. Judah, his wife died and after the week of mourning, he decided to go up to the sheep shearing. Now, just so you know, in this culture, sheep shearing was a party time. It was a festival time. If you're ever going to live on the moral edge, this is when people did it at sheep shearing time. It's sort of like Vegas. They thought, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And Tamar had an idea. She said, I'm going to pose myself as a prostitute and she posed herself as a prostitute and wrapped herself as a veil on the side of the road and was sort of successfully able to seduce Judah, taking advantage of the fact that he was lonely, into being with her, and she conceived children through her, through him, rather. 
Didn't have anything to give her. So essentially, she said, I will hold on to your driver's license, your car keys, and your credit cards until you can give me my goats. And I know this you know, raises all kinds of, of great practical questions. How can Judah be intimate with his daughter-in-law and yet not recognize her? Like, hello? Uh, maybe it's because she had a veil on the whole time. Maybe it's because she had been, it had been a long time and she had changed and he hadn't seen her. Maybe it was because it was dark in the tent. Maybe he needed glasses really bad. I don't know. But you can get the idea of what's going on here. He does not recognize her. And this is where it ends. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, well, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called <clears throat> Zerah. Now what happens in three months Obviously, she was pregnant. And as you can see in the text, Judah just decides, okay, we're going to burn you. We're going to destroy you. But she springs her trap at the very last minute and says, you know, I'm pregnant by the guy who owns this driver's license, these car keys, and these credit cards. And it becomes painfully obvious at that point who the one is that's the real sinner. It's Judah who would not perpetuate the family line. And she is the one who did this high-risk thing to be able to perpetuate it. Now, let me give you just two lessons out of this incredibly weird and strange text. Number one, be sure that your sin will find you out. Maybe this morning you can identify with Judah you have some kind of secret sin in your life that you keep hidden that you hope nobody will find. Be sure sin is like a beach ball. You can only hold it under the water for so long. When, when you least expect it, it'll pop to the surface. It is always better to confess your sin willingly than to be caught. Secondly, and this is the real point I want to focus on here, nobody... Nobody is beyond God's grace. This is where it gets so cool. Judah is a terrible guy. He's the guy who sold his brother into slavery. He married a pagan. He is a terrible father. Two of his children are stuck, struck dead by God. He is running from God for all of his life. But then when you get to Revelation chapter 5, Jesus identifies himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Why would Jesus do that? Here is what happens. It is at this moment in Judah's life when he hits rock bottom, when he is caught in his sin. It is at this moment in Judah's life when he has his come to Jesus moment. And from this moment on, when you follow Judah's life, you see a man of repentance and a man who goes through incredible, radical life change. Because in this chapter, he confesses his sin against Tamar. You get to Genesis chapter 42. He confesses his sin against Joseph of selling him into slavery. Genesis chapter 43. He becomes the spokesman of his brothers. Genesis chapter 44. He willingly offers to have himself become a slave rather than Benjamin, his half-brother, become a slave. Are you seeing an incredible transformation in this man's life? And in Genesis chapter 49, he becomes the one through which God carries on the promise. In fact, what it gets really cool is when you get to Jesus and you get to his genealogy and you go to Matthew chapter 1, you know, the genealogy there doesn't name every single person that was part of the genealogy. It names people of special mention, people who are especially notable. And who do you think gets noted in Jesus' very genealogy? Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Tamar, and Zerah by Tamar. Isn't this amazing? When you get to Revelation chapter 21, where it talks about where we're going to dwell forever in the new Jerusalem, and there are 12 gates on the new Jerusalem, and over top of every gate is one of the names of the sons of Israel, and over top of one of those gates that we will walk in and out of through all eternity is the name of Judah. And whenever you see the name of Judah, this is what we want to remember. We want to remember Somebody who ran incredibly hard and incredibly far from God. But he could not outrun God's amazing grace. That when he repented, God took him and restored him and used him in an amazing, amazing way for his kingdom to be part of the very lineage of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus would say, I am the lion of the very tribe of Judah. Now that means something to you. Those who are far from God, incredibly far from God, brought near and used in great ways for His kingdom and glory. This morning, I don't know what you've got going on in your life, I don't know if you're somebody who has run a long, long way from God or not. But if you are, and you're wondering, could God ever take me back? Could God ever use me after what I've done? I encourage you, look to Judah. See what God did through his life. And imagine what God can do through yours all through His amazing, undeserved grace. Amen? Jesus, we come before You. This chapter is just hard to read. 
about Judah's hardcore rebellion against you, even after he came from what would have been the Old Testament equivalent of a Christian family. But thank you for your amazing grace after running so hard away from you that when you broke him, Lord, and he repented, you took him and used him in such an incredible way for your kingdom, even grafting him in forever to your very family line. Just like you have adopted us and grafted us into your family nine, only by faith, and we do not deserve any of it. Thank you that we cannot not outrun your grace. In Christ's precious name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.